Do you struggle with money? Many folks have trouble managing their personal finances and, in addition, have no clue as to how to best serve God with the gifts He has given to them. Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and internet program with Dr. Philip Ryken, teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. Today we continue our studies in Second Kings with a message called How to Run a Building Campaign. We'll hear how to best use our bank book, and more importantly, how to best serve the church and missionaries with the resources given to us by the Lord. Well, Phil, you make a great point in today's message about people who are struggling financially and how a good way to remedy that problem is to give some of that money they have away. Can you expand on that a bit? Well, Mark, I do think it's important, even if we are in great financial difficulty, that we should find some way to give something tangible back to the Lord, even if we're only making a very small step in our giving. But even that small gift back to the Lord is a way of acknowledging that everything we have comes from Him, and we can trust Him to provide for us. And we have great promises in the Scriptures about how the Lord will open up the storehouses of heaven for people who are generous in what they give to Him. Well, Phil, if I may be so bold as to ask, how does your family give its money to the work of the Lord? Well, sure, Mark. I won't give you all the exact specifics of that, but it's been our custom now to give at least 10% of our gross income to the Lord's work. We try to give actually at least 10% of our gross income to our local church. And then beyond that, to give special offerings through the year. We try to do that at Easter, at Thanksgiving, at Christmas. We like to support Christian work beyond the local church. I'm very happy to say that we give to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. We support the work of Every Last Word and other broadcasts. I'm not just a speaker on this program, but also a donor, I might say. And what great joy it is. And I would love for all of our listeners and all of the people of God to know the joy of giving generously to the work of God and to challenge ourselves to give even more sacrificially as we grow in grace. Thank you, Phil. Let's turn in our Bibles now to 2 Kings chapter 12 and listen to God's Word for us today. I do want to teach what's in 2 Kings chapter 12, practical teaching about how the people of God should collect and count and spend God's money. It's a story of A fund drive started by King Joash because he wanted to restore God's temple to its former glory. The first step, of course, was to begin to collect the money. He said to the priests, collect all the money, this is 2 Kings 12, verse 4, collect all the money that is brought as sacred offerings to the temple of the Lord, the money collected in the census, the money received from personal vows, and the money brought voluntarily to the temple. And this verse mentions three different kinds of sacred offerings. We might think of them as tithes and pledges and free will offerings. You see, some of the money used at the temple was collected in the census. This went back to the days of Moses when every Israelite, whether rich or poor, was required to offer half a shekel to the Lord as a ransom for his life. And this half shekel was called atonement money because it was given to God in gratitude for his salvation. And that money was then used to care for the tabernacle in the wilderness. Now today we would probably think of this census money as a tithe. 
was not actually 10% of the average income, which is what the word tithe literally means, but it was a payment which every child of God was obligated to make in response to the gift of salvation. A tithe is what a person should pay to God. Now, people sometimes ask whether or not tithing is mandatory for Christians. The reason for this is that although the New Testament mentions various kinds of offerings, it never says anything specifically about a tithe. And perhaps for this reason, many Christians do not tithe. In fact, recent figures show that American evangelicals give around 3% of their income to Christian work. And frankly, I think that figure is scandalous. For if it was true in the days of the Old Testament that the people of God brought one-tenth of the good produce of their land to God, then we ought to give even more. For we know the grace that has been shown in our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that we through his poverty might become rich. Probably one tenth is the least a Christian ought to give to the Lord's work. Anyone who has received that great gift of God's grace through the sufferings and death of God's own Son will surely want to give something back to God. And so why not, at least for a start, tithe one-tenth of your income to the Lord? I mention here our own practice in our family about tithing. Our practice has always been to give a minimum of 10% of our gross income to the Lord's work and to put it into a separate account for Christian work. And then on top of that, to give various offerings to special needs or perhaps for other special occasions as the Lord leads. And this makes our own giving both a spontaneous joy and also a sacred duty. Tithing is a source of such great blessing and joy that I would counsel every Christian to follow a similar practice, especially someone who is having difficulty making ends meet. One of the first things a Christian who is in financial difficulty ought to do is to begin to give something back to the Lord, no matter how small that is to begin with. The Lord promises, and this is in the prophet Malachi chapter 3, that those who bring the whole tithe into the storehouse are testing him to see if he will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough to keep it. Well, why don't you test the Lord in his promise? Now, there's more to giving than simply tithing. Instructions given by King Joash also mention the money received from personal vows. Suppose today we would call these pledges or faith promises. A tithe is what a person, I think, should give to the Lord. A pledge is an offering that a person said that he would give. Vows were a regular part of the worship of God in the Old Testament. People brought their silver to the temple according to the size of their flocks and fields, and the payment of these vows was a way to show that everything belongs to the Lord. Now, I think pledges and promises still have their place in the contemporary church. We sometimes use them for special 
projects, perhaps some mission work or other, and we often use them also here in this church to set our annual budgets and particularly our missions budget. Making this kind of pledge is one good biblical way to support Christian work. It's often a good way to stretch your faith as well. There's a wonderful article about this in our missions newsletter for our annual missions conference just this last fall. Many of you will remember reading it. It came from one of our elders. He recounted the way that soon after he had been ordained as a deacon in the church, that the church had made faith promises to the Lord, but the offerings and the promises had been very low, and there was concern about whether some aspects of the work of the church could continue. So under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, this man made a special pledge, filling out a second pledge card and putting it in the offering plate, promising to give that amount to the Lord. Well, as he drove home, he realized he had made a mathematical mistake. He had promised 50% more than he had actually intended to promise, and in fact, more than he thought he could probably give. And yet, as he prayed about that mistake, as it were, he felt the Lord's peace and provision in his life. And then the following week, he was given an unexpected raise. The amount of that raise matched dollar for dollar the amount of his overcommitment to the Lord's work. You see, the God who gives us the grace to make a pledge in the first place also gives us the grace to keep that pledge when the time comes. Then there's a third kind of offering. It was mentioned in the days of Joash, the money brought voluntarily to the temple. That's sometimes known as a free will offering. Although I suppose in this church we prefer to call it a sovereign grace offering. It's neither a tithe nor a pledge. It is money offered in response to some pressing need or in gratitude for some precious gift from God. Literally what the Bible says here is bring what is in your heart to bring. That's what people did in the days of Moses when they were raising funds for the tabernacle. Everyone who was willing and whose heart moved him came and brought an offering to the Lord. You know, sometimes Christians speak of the Lord laying it on their hearts to give to some kind of mission work. Well, that's good theology. The Lord does that by the grace of His Holy Spirit. He moves an individual Christian to give to some particular Christian work. We often have opportunities for that here at the church, whether it's the Easter sacrificial offering or the Thanksgiving offering or even that deacon's fund which is collected in response to receiving the Lord's Supper. And you see, taken together, these three kinds of offerings establish a balanced pattern for Christian giving. A tithe is what a person should give. A pledge is what a person promised that he would give. The free will offering is what a person could give. And together, these are the signs of a grateful heart. Now, once the offerings come in, they have, of course, to be counted. Joash wanted to collect all the money, and the only way to make sure that you still have it all is to count it. The biblical principle here is accountability. Tithes and offerings belong to God, and therefore they must be guarded. Now, when 
Joash began his capital campaign. He left it up to the pastors to account for the money. And every priest received the money and let it be used to repair whatever damage is found in the temple. The problem was that the priests were shirking their fiduciary responsibilities. They were, perhaps, keeping the money for themselves, and by the 23rd year of the reign of King Joash, the priests had still not repaired the temple. Now, the Bible doesn't say why they were neglecting the temple. Perhaps they were lazy or greedy, or perhaps simply they weren't very gifted as administrators. I know that our trustees here in this church would shudder to leave the care of this building to the responsibility of our pastors. Or perhaps the priests did not think it was very important to take care of the temple. They were not anxious to spend good money on mere buildings. Well, whatever the reason, the temple, which was now more than a century old, was falling into disrepair. The basic problem was that there was no accountability. Nobody ever knew where the money was going. All Joash knew is that nothing had ever been done to renovate the temple. So he called Jehoiada, the priest, in, and he complained to him. He said, why aren't you repairing the damage done to the temple? Take no more money from the treasurers, but hand it over for repairing the temple. You see, King Joash had to take matters into his own hands. And he began by setting up a public place for the collection of these tithes and pledges and free will offerings. We read in verse 9 that Jehoiada the priest took a chest and bored a hole in its lid, and he placed it beside the altar. The priest who guarded the entrance put into the chest all the money that was brought to the temple of the Lord. And you can see how this was good security. This chest was put out in a public place. There were people around to guard it, and apparently there was only one place to put the offering, and that was through this hole in the top of the chest. And by the way, this is why we still follow this practice in this church. Perhaps you've noticed the oak boxes that we have at all of the entrances to the church, which have an opening in the top where people can put prayer requests or other things they need to communicate to the church, but also offerings. And this practice dates back to the biblical times of King Joash. Now, what people put in the box in those days was not coins, but pieces of silver. When the chest was nearly full, the silver was weighed, and it was bagged, and it was counted. We notice, this is on our subject of accountability, that counting the money was a job for two people, both, we read in verse 10, the royal secretary and the high priest. You see, if one man handled the money alone, he might be tempted to steal it. But when it comes to God's money, there needs to be financial accountability, and not even Jehoiada, the high priest, is to be trusted. The lesson for the church is to be careful with God's money. It's true, I think, that many Christian organizations keep very sloppy accounts. They are much less careful with their books than a similar secular agency would be. Of course, this gives the devil all kinds of opportunity to create scandal in the church and to damage the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ in the world. It would be much better for churches to follow established guidelines for accounting 
and auditing, and happily, in recent years, many evangelical organizations have begun to do this. Now, although the church has some difficulty collecting and counting the Lord's money, the real difficulty comes in deciding how to spend it. Anyone who's ever been to an annual church meeting knows the truth of this. How much should the minister be paid? What should we spend on the building? What percentage of a church's budget should be devoted to missions or to charitable work? These are hard questions. I remember attending a congregational meeting at which a vote was taken to begin a new building project, and almost everyone voted in favor of it except for seven members who were all the members of the church finance committee. That shows the difficulty. And I can remember many other occasions, whether amicably or not, when Christians disagreed about how to apportion the church's resources. You see, our difficulty is that the Bible does not give us the answers. You will read through the New Testament in vain for something like an annual report from the church at Ephesus or specific guidelines about the percentages in the church budget. God has left these matters up to the church under the spiritual direction of the elders. We do find here in the Bible two basic principles to help us set our priorities. In the days of King Joash, the people of God spent money on two different things. One was the preservation of God's house, and we'll come to that in a moment. The other main budget item was the proclamation of God's word. There's an important verse about this, verse 16. The money from the guilt and sin offerings was not brought into the temple of the Lord. It belonged to the priests. You see, even after Jehoiada had set up this special box for the capital campaign for the temple, the priests were still entitled to their fair share. The important biblical principle here is that the people of God must support the proclamation of the Word of God. This was the teaching of Jesus Christ. It was the teaching of the Apostle Paul, who often paid his own way as a missionary and yet always insisted on the right of a gospel minister to earn a decent living. Our own book of church order in the Presbyterian Church in America has a good phrase for this. It tells churches to provide their minister with competent worldly maintenance. That means nothing extravagant, of course, but enough to meet the minister's daily needs. Of course, our missionaries need the same degree of care. The church should provide generously for their financial needs. Supporting the worldwide advance of the gospel means paying missionaries a stipend which meets their real needs. Surely every church will want to find out at least annually about the details, the financial details of the work of their missionaries, and also to meet whatever special needs may arise. Now, I said that King Joash spent money on two things, and one was the proclamation of God's word, and the other was the preservation of God's house. Joash understood that there was ever to be any hope of renovating the temple, that these two budget items needed to be kept separate. Now, when it comes to church buildings, I think there are two dangers to avoid. One is to become obsessed with the outward appearance of the church building. 
church building is not a monument. It is a means of ministry. The Holy Spirit is not very particular about which churches he is willing to visit. He would just as soon enter the smallest chapel as the grandest cathedral, provided that the Word of God will be preached faithfully and that the worship of God will be maintained wholeheartedly. What goes on inside the church is much more important than how much money is put into it. And furthermore, a beautiful church building is no guarantee of a faithful congregation. We find that, we won't spend time on it, but we find that at the end of this chapter. An enemy comes and King Joash bribes the enemy king by giving away all of the articles and all of the gold and all of the silver that was collected to refurnish the temple. You see, all of the work that he invested in caring for the temple went to waste. He had to rob the very temple that he refurbished. The obvious lesson, you see, this was an act of faithlessness on the part of Joash, not trusting in the Lord to protect him. The obvious lesson is that a beautiful building does not make a faithful heart. Perhaps you've noticed this. It's impossible to tell from the outside of a church building anything about the spiritual health of the congregation inside. Often the difference between the outside and the inside is either exhilarating or appalling. We find that, I suppose, in some of the great cathedrals of Europe, which have become relics of the past. We probably find it in many of the grand churches in the cities of our nation. And on the inside, they are little more than museums. The church is not a building. It never has been, and it never will be. That's because the triune God is not in need of housing. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. This is one difference between Joash's day and our own. You see, it was in the Old Testament that God located his name and his glorious presence at the temple in Jerusalem. It was his way of dwelling with his people. But you see, now God has sent his own son to dwell among his people. And so what the Bible tells us is that we ourselves are the temple of God. You are God's temple and God's spirit lives in you. For we are the temple of the living God. So you see that even if this church building were to burn to the ground this very night, the church of Jesus Christ in this place would remain unscathed because the church is the people of God. Perhaps you know the old children's rhyme about the church. I wonder if some of our first and second graders that are here with us this morning will remember this one. You know how it goes? Here is the church, and here is the steeple. Open the doors and see all the people. Well, that's okay, but it needs a little improvement from the theological standpoint. Here is the building, and here is the steeple, but open the doors to see God's people. Particularly for you children, you remember that as you think about what it really means to be a church. Now, I said 
But there were two dangers when it comes to church buildings. One is to be so obsessed with a church building that you mistake the building for the church. But of course, the other danger is to decide that it is somehow unspiritual to spend God's money on physical property. This view sometimes occurs in the church. It comes out of a good desire to recognize the absolute necessity of the ministry of God's Word. And yet in its zeal for God's Word, it neglects the very teaching of God's Word. And that is that everything we do has spiritual significance, including the way that we maintain our building. Taking care of a house of worship so that it can be used for God's glory is one part of our service to God. And under Joash, the people of God understood the spiritual importance of a house of worship. Once they had gathered the money, we read in verse 11 that men were appointed to supervise the work, and they brought in carpenters and builders and masons and stonecutters. They purchased timber and they dressed stone and met all the other expenses of restoring the temple. You see that when they finally got around to repairing the temple, they did the job right. They used the finest materials. They recruited skilled workers, gifted in the disciplines of carpentry and masonry. And they had a good sense of priorities. First thing they did was made sure that the building was structurally sound. You have to do that first. There's no sense buying the new carpet before you patch the roof. And these workers show us The way that maintaining a building for the worship of God is a matter of sound stewardship. It's something a church owes to God. Church building is a gift from God and should be used for His glory. It's also something a church owes to its neighbors. It's a way of showing that we care for our own neighborhood, the way that we keep up our property and maintain our building. It shows that we are committed to our work, that what we do here is important. It's also very inviting. After all, who would ever want to walk into a church building which is run down? Now, the way that we care for our property is a reflection on the character of God. It's also something we owe to our children. You might think about it like this. Lord willing, this church building will still be standing 50 years from now. The believers who attend worship in this space will be our own brothers and sisters. Therefore, it is our responsibility right now to show them Christian love by making sure that they have a good place to worship and also to share the good news about Jesus Christ. Some time ago now, there was a section of copper roof which needed to be replaced on part of the church building. That roof, I had been told, was made to last a hundred years. And it had lasted a hundred years, and now the hundred years was up, and the question was what to do to repair it. And as you always have, you have several options. The trustees could do some kind of patchwork job that would last for a while and would be, in the short term, a lot cheaper. Or they could replace it with another copper roof that would last another hundred years, which would be much more expensive initially, but in the long term would be a good investment. Now, I don't actually know exactly where we are in that process, but I understand that we've made a commitment to put back on a hundred-year roof. Now, some people might object to that. I mean, after all, who knows if the church building will even be around in another century? 
Probably Jesus will come back before that time. And I hope he will. And yet, at the same time, if, no, not if, when he does come, he will be greatly honored to find that we were prepared to worship him year after year and decade after decade until that very day when he comes. You know, one group of Christians who understands about the importance of a church building in its true spiritual sense is the Church of the Hungarian Reformation. One of the most beautiful books in my library has page after page of photographs from these wonderful Hungarian churches with the curious belfries and ornate carving work inside and beautifully painted interiors. These church buildings are beautiful, but they are not ostentatious. Their beauty comes from their simplicity. The kind of church buildings that were built by people who understand that the primary purpose of a church building is for the worship of God. That book begins with these words with which I close. The Calvinist church is the bastion of our soul. And it is so whether it has got mud walls or is made of blocks of stone, because according to the divine promise, the word descends on it and fills it with strength. The presence of God in the word of Christ is promised by God to his congregation. This is the essence of the church, which redeems, sanctifies, and eventually glorifies the faithful. From this emerges the purpose of the church building, to provide a home for preaching the gospel and for the congregation to hear and answer the word. May our own building remain a place for the preaching of the word of God and for the response to it in the hearts of God's people until that day when Christ returns. Amen. And let us pray. Father, we freely confess we are often confused about how to use your money, yet we want to use it faithfully. We ask that you would give us wisdom not only to understand what the Scriptures teach about our offerings, but also to apply that teaching with wisdom so that we might serve you to your glory in this city. In Christ's name, amen. You have been listening to Every Last Word, a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, featuring the Bible teaching of Dr. Philip Graham Ryken. We appreciate your ongoing support of this broadcast ministry. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades, even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. The Alliance also produces the radio broadcasts The Bible Study Hour, featuring the teaching of the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, featuring the Bible teaching of the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. For a full list of radio stations carrying our programs, please visit our website at www.alliancenet.org. Every last word continues through your generous gifts and financial support. If you would like to see this program continue to benefit others as it has benefited you, please prayerfully consider becoming a friend of the Alliance. 
For more information or to make a contribution, please contact us by calling toll-free 1-800-488-1888. You can also send us a gift by writing to Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to Every Last Word.